This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. All right, guys. Thank you so much for those openings and rebuttals. So now we're going to jump into the favorite part of every debate, which is the cross-examination. Once again, this is going to be both teams that get 20 minutes each for cross-examination. The way this is going to work is that the first team will go for 10 minutes, then the opposing team will go for 10 minutes, and so forth and so forth. In this cross-examination, be sure to ask your questions. Make sure those who are receiving the questions answer those questions directly. If you can answer those questions with a simple yes or no, please do so. You do not want to bog your opponent his time down also uh for example if dr dustin smith asks a question to samuel feel free kyle to also chime in on the response to that question all right so that said samuel and kyle you guys are up first for your 10 minute cross examination of william and dustin so once you start to, for your first question i'll start your time who's going first kyle you or me you are samuel all right, let's do this. All right. First of all, thank you. I want to thank both both of you, Dustin and uh, William, really for that uh, enlightening debate. I'm really enjoying this debate, and I really appreciate the, the high standard that you guys have set. Uh, so let's let's begin with the first question uh, that I have. Let me pull out my notes here. Uh, if and let, this is just a, an opening question for either one of you. If if the New Testament hypothetically again i believe it does but hypothetically if the new testament is intending to teach that jesus is yahweh how would it have made it any clearer apart other than what it already has given that you know you have to use the greek kyrios you can't use the hebrew equivalent of yahweh how would it make it any clearer i think it would have to uh remove all references to Jesus as the son, because in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh is the father alone. And so to suggest that Jesus Yahweh is really um, not just suggesting, you're deliberately stating that Jesus is the father and he's not the father, he's the son. And that of course makes a distinction between the two of them. And uh, since uh, Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible is a single person and not a plurality of persons or three persons, uh, then, you know, we can see that the distinction that's commonly made between uh, Yahweh and the Messiah um, would, I think, make it very, very difficult for that sort of equation to take place. Yeah, so I guess that the assumption, thanks, Dustin. I assume the assumption then is that uh, Jesus is not obviously the eternal son. Sonship means he was created at some point of time, right? I do think that the uh, Bible says that Jesus is brought into existence, and I do think that um, all sons uh, are younger than their fathers, I think, by definition. Yeah, so uh, I, well, I, I would disagree and, of course, point to uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which speaks of an eternal procession. But uh, instead of that, let me first, before getting to that, I would like to get to Philippians chapter 2 first, since that's something that you dealt with. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, you mentioned, uh, Dustin, that since God exalts Jesus, uh, you mentioned two points, actually. Number one is that God and Jesus are distinct. I'll, I'll come back to that as well. But that God exalts Jesus, therefore, uh, this is something that God shares. Uh, my, my question is, does the exaltation of Jesus according to the order of, uh, in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11, uh, does the exaltation of Jesus take place prior to his kenosis or after the kenosis, where he empties himself voluntarily? I think that uh, the exaltation 
uh, occurs after the resurrection. I, th I think the resurrection is implied. We don't have to say that God raised him from the dead. I think that's implied there. But clearly, Jesus was raised from the dead by God, and uh, God highly exalted him uh, to his right hand. But you would but agree that. So, it, I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry. You're Please fine. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I just think that yeah. the. Uh, yeah, this, it, there's, there seems to be uh, an order that goes from uh, verse 6, even though verse 6 continues a sentence that begins in verse 5 in Greek, and it just continues to work down through. And, uh, of course, the, the exaltation in uh, 9, 10, and 11 uh, happens uh, after Jesus died. So, Thanks for that. Now, so if, the, if I understand you correctly, you don't disagree that the kenosis took place or the emptying of Jesus himself took place prior to the exaltation, and that's the order of Philippians 2, uh, then in that case, when do you think that Jesus humbled himself, did not cling on to equality with God? When does that take place? Is it before the incarnation uh, or, I mean, before he was born, or was that after Jesus was born based on Philippians 2? Yeah, I think based on Philippians 2, since the subject uh, of the entire hymn, according to verse 5, is Christ Jesus, that, of course, is King Jesus, that is his anointed title and his given human name. So we're not talking about a pre-existent son of God. We're not talking about some sort of pre-existent word. We're talking about the human historical Jesus. So when I look at his ministry, I see many times where Jesus um, decides to not uh, exercise his uh, prerogatives. He doesn't want to turn um, stones into bread. He doesn't want to call legions of angels down to protect him. He doesn't claim to be the one who's worthy to be served. In fact, he actually is the one who decides that he's going to empty himself and serve other people. So I think that uh, the kenosis uh, is actually something that Jesus does in his ministry as a human being. Thanks for that. So, but it says here by taking on human likeness, right? So being born. So the it seems that the action of Jesus humbling himself according to Philippians 2 takes place before he was born in the likeness of men. So why would I be wrong for assuming that, uh, contrary to what you just said, this actually teaches both pre-existence and that Jesus in the pre-existent state is explicitly stated here uh, equal with God? Well, I don't think it's explicit. I think that uh, humanity um, in, in Paul's anthropology is not something that's neutral. Humanity is something that is sinful and in, in need of redemption. And since what Jesus does is that he starts with the morphe theu, and he doesn't uh, take on the form of human. He actually takes on the form of the servant. And I actually think there's a very specific servant that he takes on. I think he takes on the role of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 through 53. And so this is someone that has the functional equality with God that the Jewish king understandably had based on a variety of passages from the Hebrew Bible in the Psalms. And this is someone who doesn't instead, I do think that Harpagmos means something that he possessed, but he didn't exploit rather than something that he didn't have and that he tried to grasp at. I think that instead of exploiting that role of being Messiah and the functional equality, he emptied himself, not by taking something on and grabbing humanity. That's not what the definition of emptying means. Okay, He emptied himself of those uh, privileges and responsibilities as Messiah, and he took on the role and the attitude of the suffering servant. And he continued to live his life as a servant who humbled himself, who served other people. And that, of course, makes Philippians 2 the example for readers, which is actually what Paul tells us to do. We're just to take that 
passage and make it as an example for us to follow. Uh, if Jesus really uh, God who decides to become a man, that is an impossible example for anyone to follow. So that's my reading of the passage. Right. I was going to actually discuss about how the morphe is parallel to taking being born in the likeness of men. But due to time, I'm just going to go to uh, my the other passage that I brought up, which is Second uh, Peter. Uh, sorry, First Peter chapter three was fourteen to fifteen. Uh, and as I pointed out, Dustin uh, or, or Will, uh, that uh, this is a passage where Peter is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, 12 to 13, which says, do not fear and don't be afraid, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Peter just takes that same passage and substitutes it with Christ the Lord. How is this not a clear passage demonstrating Peter's understanding that Jesus is indeed the Lord of hosts, Yahweh? Uh, because we've already demonstrated in our opening statement that the New Testament use of the Old Testament is not a one-to-one equivalent. We know from Matthew 2, when it quotes from Hosea 11, verse 1, that the nation of Israel is quoted to refer to Jesus. That's obviously not a one-to-one equivalent. We know that Jesus in Matthew 13 uh, is quoted and uh, using a passage uh, from the Psalms using Asaph. Jesus clearly not Asaph. And of course, the Emmanuel passage from Matthew 1, 23 is referring to someone in the 8th century prophet Isaiah's time. So the New Testament use of the Old Testament is very flexible. And I think a much better reading is that uh, in the context of First Peter, which is writing to an audience spanning the size of Montana uh, that uh, clearly are dealing with how to function as Christians in the midst of the Greco-Roman world and emperor worship by saying that they need to sanctify Christ as Kyrios in their heart, that they are actually uh, making Jesus the Lord, not Caesar. So... Uh, that is actually a title, not the actual name for God. So there's a much looser use of the uh, use of scripture there. And I think, again, that uh, the context would suggest that uh, it's meant to be a reference of Jesus being Lord, not Caesar. So you said it cannot be used. Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Kyle. Please go ahead. Yeah. Briefly, Dustin, for a non-American uh, audience, could you clarify how big Montana is? That's a U.S. Um, Montana is, is 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 absolutely massive. I mean, when, when you read First uh, uh, Peter, I think it's the first two verses. He lists all of these different. Uh, you have to like look in the back of your Bible to see the size of the map. Montana is 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 massive and huge. Okay, I think I got that reference from the Hermeneutic right. commentary, so I didn't make that up. So. All right. Yeah, I've got I've got forty seconds left. Uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just uh, maybe make this my last question. There, you said this. It's it's not a one to one reference. Is there anything in this particular text? that would suggest it's not a one-to-one -one reference because I, I think that it clearly is, uh, except that he's looking at it as a uh, lot of hosts, Jesus as a lot of hosts. Is there anything in this text that is in First Peter 3 that would suggest it's not a one-for-one? -one? I think the entire context of First Peter, which regularly distinguishes uh, Jesus from God, Jesus, of course, is never called Yahweh explicitly there, and... Um, we also see that Jesus is the person who has died, something that Yahweh cannot do. I think that's absolutely clear. So I think the, all the other references would naturally read people to make uh, what I think is a pretty self-evident claim. All right. Thank all you. Right. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you so much. All right, William and Dustin, you guys are up for your first 10-minute cross-examination of Samuel Cow. Well, again, thank you both so much for what has taken place so far. I think the engagement on both sides has been fantastic, and we, we definitely uh, respect both of you and your viewpoint and uh, looking forward to uh, 
very enlightening further cross-examination period. And again, the point of this cross-examination period for some of the audience that may not be aware or have watched debates before is we're here to test ideas. We're here to poke and prod at ideas. I'm not poking Samuel. I'm not poking Kyle. Uh, you know, we, we de you know, definitely respect y'all. So um, we're just trying to, to, to point out the distinctions between our view and your view. And I know you're doing the same. So um, really enjoying this so far. Um, I want to get to something that came up um, during the rebuttal and also in our opening speech, and that is uh, the title of Yahweh. And you know, we we believe our, our stance has been that Yahweh is the Father alone in the in the Hebrew Bible, and that that is illustrated over twenty thousand times. So I guess I guess my question, in light of all of this, is um, you you agree with us that there's twenty thousand singular references to Yahweh, right? Like that's not. That's not contesting. You're not contesting that in this debate, correct? So, Samuel, I, I think I've watched some debates of yours before. You you have um, at times said that Yahweh can use we can use singular uh, references because it's the Father speaking. Is that is that how yes. you understand it? That it's the Father speaking. Yes, I, I think that. Yeah, I mean, but we speak of Yahweh today. We 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 use the singular pronoun as well. We say God, He, uh, even though we, we right. believe that Yahweh is more than one person. So yes, uh, I think if the Father is speaking, He can say I, and when the Father speaks, He can say there is no God besides Me. Uh, that fits within the entire Trinitarian framework that I hold to. Yes. Sure. So yeah, so you have the Father speaking for the three persons of the Trinity. Um, so then, I guess if when I could, we get to a passage, could I clarify that. Yes, please, sorry, please. Yeah, real. Sorry, thanks so much. Real quick, just to clarify that, I I think that uh, in the operation of the Trinity, they work as one. So in a sense, there's that mm -hmm. if anything that God does, uh, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, uh, God is involved in it. So I think the same would be applied to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Kyle and I had this conversation at the end of last year where we talked about how uh, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually the blasphemy of God itself. Uh, so I, I think that you can't distinguish or create a dichotomy between that in that sense. Uh, when every member of the Trinity speaks, uh, in, in, in speaking for Yahweh, I think that in that sense, it's representational of all three persons, yes. We hold to the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I guess when, when we think about the Old Testament, especially how it gets applied in the New Testament, we think about passages like Exodus 3, 6. Um, I'll read that for you. It says, and, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, who is this God? Would you agree that this is Yahweh, talking about Yahweh? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So then, when we get to that, yeah. yeah, of course, that's Yahweh. Yeah. 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 So then, when we get to Acts three thirteen, it says, "The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His child Jesus." That's Acts three thirteen. Uh, how would that fit your view of this? There's one God. There's there's no other God apart from uh, Jesus. Is not a distinct God. Uh, just the same way we would. And get address passages like John 17 3 the father is the only true God uh, Jesus is not going to say the father is one of many gods uh, he, he is a monotheist and so yes uh, in that sense that's how we would approach it I'm not sure if Carl wants to add on to that yeah no I mean I, I absolutely agree um, it's not surprising that the father would recognize or highlight or exalt the son it's not surprising that uh, the Bible could even speak uh, of God as God in his being, you know, exalting or highlighting one of the hypostases, one of the persons of God. So, yeah. 
I mean, it, it, right. I don't have a problem. Okay. So maybe if you could clarify it, it would be more clear. Yeah, no, I, I, I think in Acts 3, what we look at is we see God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Peter defines that to be the God of our fathers. And then he separates that from glorifying his holy child, Jesus. And it seems like he's referring to Exodus 3 when he does that. And so that's, or, you know, that's, that's all we're trying to point out is that Peter defines God, who is Yahweh in Exodus 3, 6, as the father. And then, the, then his son, Jesus, is a separate person in our, in our view, a separate being we would add to that. And I think you would say separate person, but not separate being. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely correct. And so, I mean, I think I think what you say um, is a good example uh, for what I mentioned in the rebuttal that we bring these certain presuppositions to the text. And so, whenever I look at this as a Trinitarian, I don't see anything that disagrees with Trinitarian theology. And I think whenever you look at it as a biblical Unitarian, you don't see anything that's different from uh, your Unitarian theology in this passage. And so, I think. Once again, we have to get to the overall framework, which is most consistent, which I think both of us have been trying to present. Totally. So I guess, you know, we've been talking about what kind of evidence would we need to be convinced? Um, one of those questions that I would ask in light of that is, could you, can you find a scripture reference anywhere that describes Yahweh as three or as triune? How do you want to respond to that, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, no, I, mean so yes. I would point I would point to the various passages that we mentioned in our opening statement where we say that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, we could also look at passages that do a similar thing with the spirit of God, or we could look at Old Testament passages that appear to us as Trinitarians as a hypostasis of God um, in an incarnate type form. And so, I mean, I think that for us, it's just look at the scriptures as a whole and you see that God reveals himself in three different hypostases. So in other yeah, words, so, you'd say, say that... Can I oh. clarify that real quick? Can I clarify? I, I keep using that term, as you know, throughout the history of the church. It's a very um, confusing term because the Greek word hypostases, or you're talking about prosopon and these other words... Uh, they don't, they're not a one-to-one -one with English person, like we might say. Right, right. well, uh, if, if you don't, uh, I was actually, the reason I asked whether Carl could go first is because I, I had a little bit of a longer answer to that. Do, do you mind if I expound on your that question further? Is that okay? Sure. All right. Yeah, so if you go to Genesis chapter 18, uh, we see that the Bible teaches, uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 18. It says that Yahweh appeared was one to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And, and in that conversation, you will see a distinct distinction of, uh, uh, you know, the pronouns being used here. So you, you would see, for example, uh, in verse 18, uh, uh, sorry, let me read from verse 17. Yahweh said, so Yahweh appears as a person and is speaking face to face with Abraham here saying, uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him. So this is uh, Yahweh who appeared saying, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh. Now Yahweh is referred to in the third person. Uh, and, and so that Yahweh, may the Lord, may bring to Abraham what he, third person singular pronoun has promised him 
Uh, and now he goes on to say, verse 21, um, he's, that he's going to go down to Sodom and do that. And I just quickly, due to time, point to, we go to chapter 19, in the destruction of Sodom, we see the two angels going down to Sodom, and then they come back, uh, bringing Lot and his family out, uh, minus Lot's wife, of course. Uh, and then in the destruction of Sodom, it says here, verse 24, Genesis 19, 24, then Yahweh rained down on Sodom, uh, and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So already you have the ref two times the word Yahweh is mentioned here, where the original context is there's Yahweh on heaven, who is referenced to in the third person, and then there's Yahweh on earth. And Yahweh on earth mm -hmm. rains down fire from Yahweh sure. in heaven. So I, I would say that this is a clear demonstration within the first book of scripture uh, that there's multi personal, mm -hmm. uh, there's more than one person in Yahweh. Sorry for the long answer. Sure. No, it's okay. Uh, one of the qualities of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is that he is omniscient or all-knowing. Would you say that Jesus is omniscient? Yes. So then how do you understand Mark 13, 32, where he says concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father knows. In fact, the spirit's not mentioned there as knowing either. And he's not limited by yes. human nature, I'll add to that. So how do you understand Mark 13, 32? Yeah, I understand that. And again, I've responded to this in my previous debates, as you know, uh, by simply pointing to the communicatio idomatum, uh, that is the communication of the attributes, saying that in his human nature, uh, that the, the all the properties of the human nature are communicated to the person of Christ, and that in light of Philippians 2, Christ has willingly, voluntarily chose to uh, humble himself through the kenosis, being born in the likeness of men, taking on a human nature. And so as a result of that, he submits his knowledge to the will of the Father. That's not to say he has no access to that knowledge, but it's a willing submission to the knowledge of the Father. That's how I would understand that passage.